Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Now that you're all juiced up, uh, use those fingers to turn off your cell phones. Uh, if Brian Anino's goes off, he'll make it part of the music. Uh, I've been asked to announce that the uh, Long Now Foundation has a new shop and museum at Fort Mason right next to Green's. And uh, some of the stuff that Brian has been working on, such as the, the huge chime generator for the 10,000-year clock, is there on display, along with uh, Danny Hillis's, uh current iteration prototype 2 of the clock, which is bigger than three of us and looks like a Fabergé egg. These cards are a way to get questions to the stage. And um, there are people in yellow hats, volunteers wandering around. Uh, anytime during the thank you, volunteers, uh, anytime during the talk or during Q&A at the end, uh, go ahead and scribble down a question. It's good to put your name on there because we often call out the name and find where you are so the speakers know who they're talking to. And if you want to be on the email list and are not, go ahead and put your email address at the bottom. Um, one thing I will say about writing questions is the readability counts. Uh, short and highly readable, sort of in the dark down here, where Kevin Kelly and I are going through the questions looking for the juiciest ones. Brian Eno has uh, been with Long Now from the start. He named it the Long Now Foundation. Uh, he gave the first talk in this series of seminars about long-term thinking. And uh, he's a member of the board and is uh, known as, as well as being one of the great contemporary musicians and composers and artists, um, a very, very comfortable and creative collaborator with other people. And so on sort of a trial basis tonight, uh, we'll see what it's like to uh, put a creator of music with a creator of games. Games with, for computers are really news that stays news. Um, the first serious computer game was Space War, 44 years ago in 1962, uh, written by a group of hackers at MIT, uh, who was at Steve Russell, mainly, along with Alan Kotek, Peter Sampson, and Dan Edwards. Ten years later, um, 1972, this was written in Rolling Stone. Space War was the illegitimate child of the mating of computers and graphic displays. Remember, back in 62, uh, computation was something you sent off to the manufacturer. Uh, you sent the data away, and it, uh, like color film, and then it came back days or weeks later. Uh, hopefully usable, but not always. Space War was real time. It was the illegitimate child of mating of computers and graphic displays. It was part of no one's grand scheme. It served no grand theory. It was the enthusiasm of irresponsible youngsters. It was disreputably competitive. It was an administrative headache. It was merely delightful. Yet Space War, if anyone cared to notice, was a flawless crystal ball of things to come in computer science and computer use. It was intensely interactive in real time with the computer and encouraged new programming by the user it bonded human and machine through a responsive broadband interface of live graphics display. It served primarily as a communication device between humans. It was a game. It functioned best on standalone equipment, which is a big deal in those days. It served human interest, not machine. A lot of the work being done then was trying to keep the machines interested. 
and games didn't care if the machines were interested or not. And mainly, it was delightful. I wrote that. <laughs> 1972. 44 years later, computer games still lead the way, and Will Wright leads computer games. Please welcome Will Wright and Brian Eno. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? That's yours. Can you hear me? Um, thank you. Thank you all very much for coming. And the format tonight is slightly undecided, but <laughs> essentially we're going to talk about games, generative music, and what those things do for us and what's different about them from things we've known in the past. And... I'm actually the assistant here. This is, this is really Will's talk. No, um, not really. I've been encouraging him to basically interrupt me at every stage, <laughs> overcome his English reserve. Shut up. You're interrupting <laughs> me. Um, That's the spirit. <laughs> um, we're going to talk and interrupt each other for um, about an hour, and then there will be questions, which I think you know to write down on pieces of paper, which will be thrown away at the back of the room. <laughs> yeah. And then Stuart will ask the questions he wants to ask us anyway. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> okay. And I have to say what an honor it is actually to share the stage with Brian, uh, whose work has been just very inspirational to me for as long as I can remember. So, uh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I'm clapping you. Can I reciprocate that? Thank you. So I'm going to do some boring PowerPoint at the beginning of the talk, and uh, I think Brian's going to score my boring PowerPoint with uh, very interesting experimental music. Uh, so, uh, you know, I actually just got back in town recently a few days ago, and I was trying to remember what time the talk was, and so I went to the website for the Long Now Foundation and saw that the talk was Friday, June 26th, <laughs> which, uh, consulting my calendar, I found that those two things were incompatible. Which I find ironic for an organization whose sole charter is to chart passage of time, you know. So, but, but when you, when you're dealing with ten thousand years, a few days doesn't really make that much difference. Yeah, I mean. So I think we're missing half the audience that probably came here Friday. But um, so uh, I wanted to start just a little bit, just by delving into compression a bit, because I think a lot of what we're going to talk about this is underlying it, and I know that all of you find the idea of compression just fascinating. Uh, but really, it's the basis of a lot of really interesting systems. In fact, you know, what we know as science is really observing the natural world around us, you know, all the data that we can see and collect and observe, and trying to compress it into the simplest, most elegant rule sets possible. Uh, you know, in some sense, we even use that as a guidepost. You know, when Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA, they did it by building these models, and then they tripped across the idea of the double helix, and it was so aesthetically pleasing to them, they just kind of knew it was right. And games really are just kind of the opposite process. We're trying to come up with very, very simple rules that we can decompress into these elaborate worlds. And I think the kind of work that Brian's doing as well kind of speaks to that, looking for very simple systems that can generate really interesting complexity. It's, it's called laziness, really. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yes, I, I suppose 
the thing that most impressed me, one of the musical things that most impressed me in my life was a piece by a composer called Steve Reich, which is an extremely simple piece in terms of the inputs and the system. It's, it's two, two loops of tape that run out of phase with each other and get progressively more out of phase and thus generate a, a very complex piece of music. And I was so impressed that um, something so simple could create something so powerful. When did you do that? Was it a that was thing? 1964, I think, that piece. It was called It's Gonna Rain. Hmm. And it's the amount of actual sonic material in the piece is 1.8 seconds long. But the piece is 30 minutes long or something like that. Oh, really? So what are the duration of the two pieces? Like... Well, it's the same loop on two machines, 1.8 seconds long, and uh, one machine runs slightly slower than the other. So gradually, they, the relationship between the loop, two loops shifts. And uh, in fact, that's been the basis of a lot of the music I've done since then. Music for airports, for example, was mm. based on that idea. And a lot of the ambient music is based on this notion of instead of trying to design a piece from the top down, which is what you normally think of as composition, you know, you have the whole piece in your mind and then you sort of build it all like an architect makes a building. This is, this is more like a gardener. You, you have a seed and you plant it and you see what happens, you know. So, so when that seed comes out and it's not what you like or what you expect, then you, I mean, you, make you go back and make a new seed and make yeah. a new seed? Yeah. So exactly. it's much more the process of discovery rather than composition or engineering. Yes, and you're, you're sort of in the same position as an audience, actually, because you're, you're listening to the music for the first time as well. So, so the music is generating itself anew for you, the listener, as well as for the audience. So it it's, puts the composer in an interesting new relationship to the music, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think as a creator, it also puts a big challenge on you because now you're in the process of exploring rather than engineering or sculpting. Yeah, so you have to care about your inputs and your systems a lot more mm -hmm. since, since you aren't designing the whole thing. You're not specifying in detail the whole thing. You're making something that by definition is going to um, generate itself in a different way at different times. So yeah, we see that a lot with simulations because we're always looking for very simple rule structures that we build into prototypes. And we just turn them on and see what happens. And then from there, we will start modifying them. And it's very much the process of surprise and discovery. Mm -hmm. And it's so nonlinear, it's so counterintuitive that it's very difficult to kind of have an end result mind as a target and then shoot for that. It's actually far more productive to just kind of experiment and let the results of those experiments kind of present opportunities to you. Yeah. You know, that, oh, that's really cool. You know, I never would in a million years have thought to go there, but these simple rules brought me there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this, this is sort of a new way of being an artist, really. I mean, it's not so new now. People have been doing it for 30 or 40 years, but to, to make it explicit and say, this is what I do, and to own up to the fact that what you're doing is making seeds rather than forests, you know, yeah. and letting the forests grow themselves. So I thought we would uh, delve into just generative systems uh, across a broad range of topics here. You know, kind of one of the preeminent ones is biology. Uh, and this is one that we're very familiar with. Richard Dawkins, the biologist, estimated that uh, typical willow seed actually only contains, contains about 800K of data, which is enough to fit on like one of the old floppy disks, uh, which is really amazing when you imagine all the trillions of atoms and all the complexity in a willow tree that the genome of it compresses down to that small it's very powerful ratio there. 
Uh, it also, we see examples of this in things like behavioral sciences. You know, ants have very simple rules, but when you combine those simple rules, they d- display amazingly elaborate intelligent behavior. Uh, Spirograph is a great example. Uh, one of the most understandable examples, you know, using simple geometry to create these Well, another, another example of a very simple generative system like that is wind chimes, of course. That's a, that's a generative system that oh, yeah. I mean, people don't take very seriously, but in fact... In fact, that's like the first generative music, do you think? Uh, algorithmic? I think it probably is, yeah. I guess it's uh, well, Aeolian, Aeolian harp is probably the first one. Actually, it's an interesting question. I mean, do you draw a distinction between, let's say, randomly generated uh, music, like wind chimes, mm-hmm. and algorithmically generated, where there's some deterministic rule underneath the system? Well, it's one part, of course, of the wind chime thing. The most important part isn't random, which is the pitch of the notes. The, the, the notes. So, so the only random part is when they, when they occur and uh-huh. how they cluster together. Uh, that sounds generative to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you done systems that involve more randomness? Yes, or, what, in the sound itself. Or in the selection of the notes, for instance. Yes, yes. So uh, I've experimented with all sorts of forms of randomness, and I found that um, I nearly always end up constraining it quite a lot. It seems like at some level of complexity, you wouldn't even be able to determine whether it was random or there was a very complex algorithm underneath mm. it. Uh, that's, that's true, yes. And does In that fact, remove they, some they of the become, aesthetic? They become functionally identical. Because it seems like a lot of the aesthetic for music involves patterns, repeating patterns that the uh, listener can kind of start to identify mm-hmm. and anticipate as they're coming up. Well, that's from what I call narrative music, that's true. Oh, but um, in, in the 70s, I came up with this word for a kind of music that more and more people were starting to do, which I called ambient music. And that was quite a different idea. That was the idea of music as a sort of steady state condition that you entered, stayed in for a while, and then left. Okay. So it was music as painting more than as narrative. Um, so it doesn't have beginning, it doesn't have development, it, it doesn't have climaxes particularly. Um, it's, it's closer to sitting by a river than watching an orchestra, for example. Yeah, I actually spent a lot of time listening to your albums, your ambient albums, and I, I found them interesting because you know, I was aware of them on a very subconscious level. It wasn't like most music where you're hearing it and you're thinking about it and kind of starting to kind of get into the rhythm and stuff, mm-hmm. but it would just totally change your perception of the world around you without you even realizing that it was your audio system doing that it seemed almost subconscious and you stayed awake yeah well <laughs> actually i used to do a lot of work to it you know uh you know the other music would just kind of like wear on me after a while but the ambient stuff would get me into this trance-like state in fact it was interesting because it brought me into this relaxed trance-like state but kept me awake mm-hmm. it somehow kept my brain active in a area that i wasn't even aware of yeah well uh, I think some of that music came out of trying to find something I could listen to while I was trying to work. Oh, oh really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you did like your other music? No, it's too... While you were working? too attention-grabbing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's designed to grab your attention. Exactly. And that part of the brain is what you want to apply to your creative work. Yeah. You know, and somehow it keeps that part of the brain fed. You'd better go on with that. We've okay. Got loads of slides to go. Sorry. All right. Yeah, we do. We're never going to okay. get to spore otherwise. Yeah, fractals, fractals. I'm <laughs> fractals. sure you've seen these. Uh, L systems. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. This is the boring PowerPoint part of the lecture. Uh, L systems are actually an interesting form, like fractals, that allow us to generate uh, very organic-looking shapes. Uh, and they come in a variety of kind of styles, but it's actually quite amazing that there are patterns embedded in this that you can clearly see, but at the same time, there's a very organic nature to them. These are more L-system 
things. Uh, a lot of art I tend to think of as generative, you know, where artists will use very primitive elements, but in combination they evoke totally different feelings, much more complex forms. You know, my favorite painter, Kandinsky. Yeah. Even in design, we're starting to see more people use generative system. Christopher Alexander's work uh, is very much about this, how he looks for patterns, rules, and grammars to apply to design. There are other uh, things known as shape grammars, which are being used in things like architecture and industrial design. And these are ways of applying transformations to certain design rules to generate new designs that you can then go through and prune and kind of score for efficiency. When you do music um, and you're coming up with these rules, there must be some process of you playing with the rule set, listening to it, saying, I don't like that, playing with the rule set again. So basically pruning out the yes. rules you don't like to zero in on the rules you do like. Yes, exactly. And and finding out that um, one always inclined, is inclined as a composer to put more in than you need as a listener. So, so one of the very good things about working on this is that there's a speed control. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, oh. So you listen to these things and fast forward? I work on them much faster than I end up releasing them generally. Oh, really? Yeah. And oh. in, in the days of analog tape, a lot of the music I released was released at half the speed I recorded it at. Oh, so it's like people doing film editing, where they're always zipping through the thing on their uh, editing. It's the opposite of what people do on television, where they always accelerate. You know, mm. uh, I find with music, if you're making it, you always tend to fill the gaps. Uh-huh. Um, you want to f- paint the whole picture, but if you're listening, you you actually want a lot less than that. So mm. I, I do that the simplest way is just by slowing it all down. You should release an album with all the speeded up versions. That would be interesting. <laughs> this is as Brian heard it while composing it. <laughs> the, the amphetamine version. Right, yeah, really. Amphetamine ambient. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's kind of like acid jazz. Uh, we see generative systems in psychology. You know, it's, it's amazing how humans can see patterns in almost anything. And uh, we're always searching for these patterns, even if they don't actually exist. Uh, and we've even engineered things, you know, that kind of bring us more into meditative spiritual realms that in some sense are generative systems for the mind. Uh, and games, of course, are a great example of this. This is my favorite game of all time, Go, which has two simple rules, but yet the strategy is just amazing the way it unfolds in kind of very unpredictable ways. Mm. And, you know, this is one of the clearest examples of generative systems and emergence that I've ever seen. This, um, this game, by the way... Um there's a book by Frances Fitzgerald called Fire Over the Lake about the war in Vietnam. And uh, she once interviewed a Viet Cong general after the war. And she said, why do you think you were so successful? He said, well, the Americans were playing chess, but we were playing Go. And, ah. and <laughs> that really captures the difference between the two games. I yeah, think. and Go is about 100 times more complex than chess, really, in terms of the range of strategy. You know. Yeah. And, and in fact, the compression ratio between the simplicity of the rule set and the depth of the strategy for here is just an amazing ratio. I think that ratio is uh, interesting in the entire world around us, looking at like the DNA versus, you know, the willow seed and the willow tree. You know, that compression ratio indicates a certain level of generative system, you know, and emergence. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that is based upon symmetry that we see in a lot of different ways in symmetrical operators, rules. When we're building models on the computer, you know, a lot of these become games. And in some sense, you know, models are abstractions of reality. And what they kind of remove is interesting. They're only presenting you with relevant information. When I do a game, I actually build physical models of the stuff. Uh, when I, I did a game called The Sims, it involved the screen of the neighborhood. And one of the first things I did was actually go build a physical model of it out of, like, model train materials. And that abstraction is kind of interesting to me. Uh, 
we abstract things not just spatially in games, but also in time. You know, time is something that you can play with on computers and interactive systems uh, in a totally different way than you ever get the opportunity in reality. Uh, one of the most important things about games is the fact that they have, you know, restart. You can replay the same situation over and over from the exact same starting position, which you never get the opportunity to do that in reality. And in some sense, I guess, regenerative music is the same way. Well, this, this is one of the very interesting things about generative music, that you can start it again and it unfolds differently. And this is, this is very fascinating because it, it implies a sort of space of possibilities that you gradually mm-hmm. become familiar with. So instead of becoming familiar, as you normally do with a piece of recorded music, with this particular story, you become familiar with a sort of envelope of possible stories that the music might unfold along. Yeah, in fact, that's exactly the same thing that happens in games. You know, the players are kind of exploring. Good gracious, that ex- yeah. exactly illustrates what I just said. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> we must be on the same wavelength. Uh, in games, you know, the computer actually, when it's playing chess, is actually analyzing every possible move that you might make and it might make. And uh, it's, in fact, building a map of all the possible moves up to some level of depth that might happen in the game, and that's how computer AIs work. Uh, and even board games, in some sense, become a map of the possibility space. You know, all the different spaces on that board indicate states that you can be in in this game. Most people just don't think of it as a map, really, in that sense. We can think of our games as these, in fact, very elaborate landscapes where there's terrain, and the terrain might represent challenge, difficulty. Some areas are very, you know, smooth slopes that you can climb up very gradually. Other ones are steep cliffs that are incredibly challenging to hit. So there's, in some sense, a friction to the possibility space in the interactive experience. And I guess when you're working on music, there's a certain amount of probability that you might enter certain regions of that possibility space, certain regions being more probable than others. Yes, I I remember one very funny thing that happened once. I, I used to use a particular generative piece for all of my sound and light installations for many, many years. And um, I must have listened to that piece for thousands of hours, unfolding in its various different ways. And I was setting up a show in Venice once with my assistant, and it was late at night, and we were setting up. It was that the show was due to open the next day. And suddenly, the beginning of Tammy Wynette's divorce came out. Dum, 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 dum. So it's your chance? Pure chance, yes. The thing had suddenly clustered together to produce the first couple of bars of divorce. And we were both very tired and we looked up and just fell on the floor laughing. It was so. <laughs> it never happened again. <laughs> well, you just didn't listen long enough. That's interesting because that kind of implies the vast space that music you know, occupies. The fact that it took that long just to hear one tune out of the thousands one of tunes. One tune that I recognized but, after yeah. several thousand hours, yeah. And so that kind of implies that composers are finding this very small amount of listenable space yeah. within this vast, you know, astronomically large yeah. sea of potential sounds. Yeah. And uh, it's as, you know, whenever you think of a space like that and you think of the possibilities that have been explored so far, you immediately start to think of all the ones that haven't been explored. Like if you think of the space of all possible seashells, mm-hmm. And then you think of the number that have actually been explored. It's a very small part of that. Right. And, and there's you a wonder... quality to that, too. I mean, there's a quality rating. So most of the random compositions you can make probably sound awful, correct? And so you're looking for this region of yes. quality sound. Yes. Y- yes, you want to be on the cusp where it's 
where it doesn't sound random, but it doesn't sound uh, too obvious and too predictable. Mm. It doesn't unfold like you expect it to, but it doesn't unfold in an entirely unexpected and disconnected way either. So you're exploring this huge space. It makes me wonder if there's any you know, algorithmic solution to at least find some rough measure of quality. So mm. you're not having to sit there and listen for a thousand hours to get a sense of you know, the quality of the entire range of that system. Well, that's a moving target, you see, because whenever you listen to a piece of music, you, you really are listening to the latest word in a conversation that you've been having ever since you started listening to music. Mm. You know, you hear every other piece in the piece you're listening to at that moment. So as your taste changes and your experience changes, that target will change all the time, I think. Could, could you imagine any sort of even just first pass computational filter that would pre-listen to the music, you know, analyze the structure, look for patterns, whatever, that would at least prune out the 90% that you obviously don't want to listen to mm-hmm. and let you focus, you know, your efforts on the 10% that has some promise? Would you like to work on that? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I would love to. You just have to give me the algorithm. I'll get it coded right up for you. Uh, no, it's, it's, funnily enough, there's been a lot of research into that because, um, you know, there are always people trying to figure out how you write a hit. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, formalizing the, something uh, I wouldn't mind knowing. The about, hit generator. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's been there's been all sorts of attempts to do that, but they've they've been astoundingly unsuccessful so far. Yeah, I can imagine how difficult unsuccessful. In fact, they're almost um, they're almost formulas for doing the opposite of. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Oh, so, so they're maybe quite that interesting in that respect. In that they they. They're counterproductive. It sounds kind of like stock trading programs in the sense. Yes, yes. You know, you're hitting this you know, moving target that, you know, in so many dimensions at once. But Better get, sorry. Oh, yeah. So, I, I know, oh, yeah. We've, I know Stuart the, uh, Brand is going to wrap us over the knuckles if we well, go. So we have yeah. these possibility spaces that players are navigating. And in some sense, as designers, we even think about we're engineering these possibility spaces in a very kind of abstract sense. In The Sims, we actually had two main dimensions that the player would kind of pursue as a goal state. One is material success, getting a larger house, a better career, etc. And one is social, getting a larger family, more friends. Really, we wanted the players to kind of balance the two factors. And that would lead to the highest level of success in the game. They could go for one or the other, and they would end up on a local maxima. In some sense, the game was very much like bowling. If you kind of went off to the side, you'd end up in a gutter. And you had to get it right down the middle to get the highest level of success in the game. This is actually a map that we made of several thousand players uh, playing the game across those dimensions. And so we're actually able to formally capture, you know, players' movement through these possibility spaces and start to analyze kind of where players, you know, coordinating, you know, coming together, where are they fanning out and diverging, and learning a lot of interesting things about that. Uh, I think a lot of times with linear storytelling, that's what's happening as well. This is uh, one of my favorite scenes from Indiana Jones at the beginning of the movie where he's running out of the temple with his treasure and all these traps are going off. You know, he almost falls into this pit, this giant bowl almost rolls, rolls over him. And as a viewer, I'm imagining every one of these things uh, as a possible failure state. What would happen if the ball rolled over him? What if he fell in that pit? What if this trap got him? And so even though I'm seeing one path through that possibility space, my imagination is filling out all the possibilities that could have happened. And that is a lot of the drama, is me understanding the possibility space that surrounded him and the one particular path he took through it. And I think that's the element of a lot of drama. Oh, now we go to stuff. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, stuff. Uh, at this point, I think Brian is going to start playing us some music. There you go. All right.
we thought we'd give a few examples of some general systems here. And I want you to describe what you're playing. Um, I will if I can get the volume right. I have to get this balance between where you can hear it and yet still hear us. So actually, all the pieces I I should be playing today, I made today, because <laughs> that's the power of generative systems, right? That is the power, yes. Because because I have a new computer, which was supposed to have all the contents of my old computer. It was only when I arrived here that I discovered it had none of the contents of my old computer. <laughs> it, well, it, just love had, computers. it just had the names of all the contents of my old computer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very powerful feature, too. <laughs> so, so rather than just recite the names to you, I made several new pieces of music. Yes, um, programming terms, that's called dangling pointers. But <laughs> this, this piece was meant to go with... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now we're getting on to the exciting so stuff. So these are uh, cellular automata, which probably a lot of you are familiar with. And the idea behind these is that they're very simple rule systems. And we run the rule, and it actually analyzes every cell in here. Each one of these cells looks at its neighbors, analyzes what's around it to determine its new state. And so it's the same rule applied to every cell, but because the number of neighbors is different, you get different patterns emerging. So I'm stepping through this very slowly. But Can we just, we should perhaps give the audience some idea of what these rules are like. They say things like, if, um, yeah, let me look three, if three of your neighbors are alive, you're going to die or you're going to survive in the next generation. If you've got only one neighbor alive, you'll die. If you have two neighbors alive, you'll yeah. persist, whatever. And that's the exact rule set that Those kinds of rules. is uh, probably the most well-known example of a cellular automata, and this is Conway's life. And that's his rule set, basically. If you have three or four neighbors, you survive. If you have exactly four neighbors, and this is going into every little cell and counting how many neighbors you have to determining whether a new cell is created or destroyed. And I just... Created one where I shouldn't have. But now, as we run these, I'm going to run it fast now. You start seeing these amazing patterns develop, and this is entirely deterministic. So from those very so there's rules, only those three rules. And what's very very interesting is if you make a tiny difference at the beginning, it can translate into a huge difference in the life cycle of the thing. So you know, if, if you start with a grid of nine nine squares with one added to it it'll last for 53 generations. If you add one more square to it, it'll last for 15,800 generations. And this pattern I'm showing here, every time I run and load it, it will uh, generate the exact same result. And so all of the complexity you're seeing as it runs here is embedded in a couple of simple rules. And these are very interesting systems because there are so many different uh, things that you can kind of generate with them. Uh, different patterns, symmetry, some of them are very beautiful. And this is actually, we were playing with this a little bit earlier today, and we were noticing that certain pieces that Brian was composing went very well with certain rule sets. This it was one. somewhat unpredictable as to which ones went well together. But it's actually two generative systems basically kind of playing off each other, having never even met. <laughs> I'm reluctant to play this too loud, though, because I think it's a bit disturbing to have... Oh, no, yeah. oh that's, that's lovely, isn't it? Now I'm actually pulling back on this pattern. This is way zoomed out. And as we zoom in closer and closer, you're seeing different patterns of different scales here, which is interesting. So what you have to think about is, suppose you had to make this as a film, what we're seeing here. It would be very complicated. That's a lot of information if you had to specify it. Um, 
as, as a visual phenomenon like that. But what actually has happened is that there's this tiny little set of rules and this landscape for them to work in. And the set of rules is, well, it's typically like a 2K document or something like that. Um, and you get all that richness. So, so this is the, really the power of generative systems, that you make seeds rather than forests. And these are very much the type of thing where you have no idea what it's going to look like when you build the rules. Uh, you turn it on, and it's always just a total surprise. These were actually developed uh, way back in, I think, the 40s by von Neumann, before he really even had fast digital computers to run them on. And another interesting thing about these is how fragile they are. So because this one, for instance, if we go back to the starting position, you can see it's just two simple cells. As we start running the pattern, it starts expanding, but it's totally symmetrical, bilaterally symmetrical here. And as we run it, it maintains that symmetry through its entire life. But if I pause it just for an instant and add one cell somewhere where it shouldn't be and then run it, it will end up breaking the symmetry. So now we've broken the symmetry just by putting one cell in the wrong spot. So these things are very <laughs> complex, but also very fragile in some yeah. sense. We they're, also very, they're very dependent on their initial conditions as well. So, mm -hmm. so what they start out with totally determines their life. It's actually a very, a very sort of sad view of human <laughs> possibilities, really. <laughs> how fragile it all is. And how, how nothing can change much. <laughs> Terribly sad, really. Well, you see that in biology a lot, actually. Uh, the genetic structure is such that you know, only the viable organisms will survive. Mm -hmm. And so every one of your ancestors had to you know, survive to reproduce. And a lot of times there are whole regions of evolution that are cut off to us because we have to jump across this chasm yes. of unfitness. Yes, I, I sometimes wonder about my ancestors on that score. Though. <laughs> <laughs> this is another example of, of things that we can do with these systems. We can actually Just put a little... See, this is, a, this, this is a little machine, you see. Yeah, a very elaborate um, little machine. And I can like put one little cell in the wrong spot here, and very quickly the whole thing just kind of uh, goes to crap. <laughs> Uh, that was, you know, one cell, and and now the whole cycle's broken. These guys are going off forever in that direction. <laughs> uh, we can actually use these things for doing simulation. In fact, a lot of our games are built upon cellular automata at a very simple level to simulate, you know, what seem to be very complex things. SimCity, uh, which is one of the games worked on many years ago, in fact, is underlaid by just a set of very simple cellular automata like this. For, you know, they have very simple rules for things like crime and traffic and pollution. And on top of that, we lay all these nice graphics of cars and factories and all that. But really underneath, it's a very simple grid-based system like this that allows us to simulate things. And it took a while to discover the rules, but once we actually put together a few simple rules, we got to systems where we were seeing emergent phenomena. We were seeing things like uh, urban gentrification, you know, just through the simple interactions of the crime, land value rules, and stuff like that. Mm. It seemed like it was a much more complex simulation than, in fact, it really was. Let's go to another little example here. This one is a little more visual in some sense. This is a simple program that actually has some very simple rules for figure drawing and posability of the figures. And what it does is it generates paintings, basically, on the fly. It kind of knows how to draw a few things like plants and people. Oh, I know what this This is by, um, was it Bernard Cohen who wrote this? What's his name? Or Harold Cohen? Cohen. 
Let's find out. And I, I will register this. I promise. <laughs> uh, let's find out. Oh, that was Kurzweil. Yeah. That's from Kurzweil. But every time you run this, basically, it generates a new painting. And it's interesting just because the computer is obviously doing, you know, fairly random redistribution of the poses and the figures and the colors and whatever. But they're still evocative. It's interesting. I can look at each one of these things and there's a certain mood that's kind of evoked for me in looking at them that I'm sure the computer wasn't thinking about that at all. <laughs> but this, this is one of the other interesting things about generative systems. They depend a lot on the observer as well. So one of the things a lot of my work counts on is the idea that if you put something onto a CD, people will tend to think it's probably music. <laughs> <laughs> is that a function of the cost of the CD? Or a <laughs> but it's funny. It's like um, if, you, if you put something in a frame and hang it in an, in an art gallery, people will think it's a painting. Mm -hmm. and, and they'll reserve a special kind of attention for that, which they don't give to computer screens or to their shoes or whatever hmm. um, so, so I think um, something that I'm very aware of is that people tend to connect things together in their brains I mean I, a lot of my work involves using light and sound together and I never synchronize them but people always think that they're synchronized in what ways do you use light like light shows or Ooh, that's a big long story I don't think we should go there actually <laughs> oh no I have to know. <laughs> well if we get time later but that, that, that takes a long time okay I, I don't want to I want to get to spore basically okay well well, <laughs> well we can do that right now and then we can get your long story <laughs> um, that looks like Julie Christie maybe it is Okay, let's switch screens over to this computer in audio, if we can. Uh, so, I'm going to show you a game that I'm working on right now that relies very heavily on generative systems, and it's called Spore. The rough idea was inspired by The Powers of Ten, which was a book and movie done by Charles Ray Eames, actually done earlier by a Dutch schoolteacher named Kees Bolke, called Cosmic View. But... I'm sure you've seen this either the film or the movie where you have a guy laying in a park and it zooms down to the cellular level, atomic level, all the way down to the quarks, and then it pulls all the way back up to you know the planet, the sun, the galaxy. And I always thought it was a very unique perspective, and it was kind of missing the dynamics. I always wanted to see the dynamics on different scales. So that was part of the inspiration behind the sport. Another part of it was I wanted the players to be able to create most of the game. So almost every piece of content in the game is creatable by the players. I'm just going to show you a few bits and pieces of it here. Uh, the game actually occurs across multiple scales, from cellular to kind of evolution creature, up to a tribe, city, civilization, and then in space. In fact, you're actually kind of developing, evolving uh, civilization from a single microbe. Every level of the game also has an associated editor, where the player is, in fact, actively creating the content. I want to show you kind of an example of what that looks like, because a lot of the underlying elements of the game involve the players having very powerful editors. So this is our creature editor in the game. And so it's a very simple kind of skeletal system here where I can drag out things, I can inflate them with the mouse. We want it to be extremely open-ended for the player. Uh, we have a palette of parts over here that we can kind of grab and use and stick onto the thing. Very clay-like, you know, everything I can basically kind of sculpt like clay. Uh, different types of parts. These are feet. 
as I start putting hearts on, uh, the creature starts coming to life. I can kind of morph and scale these things. Now let's give the thing a mouth here. All these parts have handles. I might scale this up a little bit narrower. There we go. And maybe give it some eyes. And maybe a set of arms as well. Now, the interesting thing about this is that no matter what the player designs, uh, the computer has to figure out how this thing would behave. Uh, so, here in a few clicks, in about two minutes, I've created you know a fully 3D character. Next up is actually coloring the thing. Now, this is all generative as well. So basically, we have simple rules for how the computer should paint this thing. So we basically select a color. Uh, and then each one of these spheres here represents a different algorithm. It puts a different pattern on the creature. So we can go for stripes, spots, scales. We can overlay and mix different patterns. So I can pick another color here and then put different stripes. The computer's actually analyzing things like where the torso is, where the legs are. Very much the way a texture artist would. And in fact, you know, typically a computer texture artist would spend a couple days texturing a creature like this. So here in about three minutes, you know, in about maybe 30 mouse clicks, I've created a creature that's roughly equivalent to what a Pixar artist might create over several weeks. And, and now the computer actually analyzes what we've made and brings it to life. So, in fact, this is the way this thing would move. And so no two creatures will actually kind of move or behave the same way in this game. So, can I just interrupt a minute? Certainly. Um, you, you see the way it's this, you see the way it's heaving up and down there. Yeah, that's his breathing. Right. So, so is the computer told in every case to to say what would this thing do when it breathes? Uh, in does this, it always do that sort of thing? It always makes a decision about. Yeah, everything it does, the computer's making some decision, and sometimes it's extracting out elements of the creature. You mm -hmm. know, maybe it's mass and weight and size. Uh, the way it moves is very based upon how long the legs are, how many feet. Yes. Uh, you know, it can move in radically different ways if I put like seven legs or tentacles or whatever. Uh, so there's a range of possibilities that the computer has to kind of understand based upon the structure of the creature that you've designed. Mm -hmm. um, so everything the creature is doing in the game, all the behaviors, have to be animatable by the computer algorithmically, uh, as well as the emotions. So we have to be able to show, you know, when the creature's happy or sad algorithmically. And depending on what you design, that can be, you know, quite tricky. So. Uh, we take this creature and we actually bring it into the world and you're actually playing in a full world of other creatures that were designed by other players. So as you design a creature in this game, you're actually interacting with other creatures that other players have designed automatically. And how is, the, um, how is the set of other creatures that you interact with chosen? It's chosen by the computer based upon what you've done in the game. So it's based upon how well you are as a player, your skill levels, uh, based upon a number of other things. So, uh, do you as a player, can you reject sets? So if, if the computer puts you in a landscape uh, which you don't like very much, can you say, I'd rather have another set of creatures, please? Well, in some sense, in later stages of the game, you can do that. Um, you can give the computer kind of directives on the type of content you want. So uh -huh. it's trying to select content that's not only appropriate for your kind of skill level, but also your aesthetic style. So you make some purchasing decisions in the game, make selection decisions. Yeah. And the computer tries to abstract that very much the way Amazon recommendations does. 
And so, in the game, I have to sure. I basically need to find food to eat. So, uh, my guy isn't too powerful, so I don't want to go for that food. Uh, we're going to go over here. I hear some easy pickings over here. So, we're going to... Um, now, again, uh, my creature is doing everything algorithmically based upon how I've designed it. Now, these guys aren't very strong, but they're very social. So they're actually kind of sticking up for each other. So even though they're weak, I'm not going to get very far with them. So I'm going to go for something a little bit easier. And that's not it. <laughs> um, I can... Oh, here we go. Some peaceful herbivores over here. Uh, if I'm quick, I can go get a bite of their egg here. I'm not too happy about that. They're herbivores, but they will defend their nests. But I did get some DNA points. Now, not only am I just trying to survive in this, but there's a whole social game. If I can find members of my own species like this, I can basically socialize with them. And as my brain level advances, I get higher, you know, basically higher levels of communication with them. Now, this one's ready to mate. So I can actually mate at this point of the game. And this is algorithmic mating. That would be banned in several states, right? Yeah. So I actually play every generation of my creature through evolution, and that gives me access to the editor again. And can I ask you something? Sure. If, if your creature doesn't survive the evolutionary struggle... Yes. What, what well, happens? Basically, you, like the restart thing that I showed you earlier... Oh, I have to defend my eggs here. Hang on one second. Huh? Get out of here. I have to defend these long enough. Basically, uh, if you died in this stage of the game, you would fall back one generation to your last egg and get an opportunity to redesign your creature uh, for the next generation. So, uh, this is the creature I had. Now, I might decide I want to make this creature faster. So, what I'm actually doing is playing every version of my creature, every generation of its revolution. So, I'm going to take off these feet, um, put on something a little bit faster. And this is how I actually increase the performance of my creature over time. And, and do, you, do you pay extra, as it were, for these... Yeah. You know, for high-performance features. Yes, in fact, um, there's a currency that you're earning, kind of DNA currency that you're earning in the game that you then spin in the editor. So at every level of the game... So if you design something like a sloth, that would actually be very cheap, would it? Yes. In fact, you could actually start as a slug. We have this little, little slug thing we called Oogie okay. that, you know, had basically a mouth, you know, and that was about <laughs> it. And, uh, it. I knew someone like that. Yeah, it was... <laughs> It was a very tricky uh, guy to survive with. Now I'm going to make my guy a little bit scarier here. You can also make changes to your guy that are more aesthetic. You know, so my happy-go-lucky guy is going to get a little more serious here. There we go. And then let's go back and paint him. Can you, can you also... Um modify the behavioral characteristics or does the computer deduce those from, from what you've done physically? In the editor you're designing the physical characteristics of your creature. Once you get into the game you're actually designing its behavioral characteristics by the way you play it. So if I play my creature as very social then it will start to reflect that in the game mm -hmm. uh, by how often I socialize with my other creatures they might become more of a herd mentality and work together like the small creatures we were at before. So here I've redesigned my creature, but as we come back into the game, we actually don't start with a full size, we start with a baby. So this is the babyfied version 
of the adults that I've just designed, we run actually a little simple neonatal algorithm, and so you see the head is exaggerated uh, and a few other things. And so the social game, I can actually click on these guys and have them socialize, play together. And as I do that, I kind of earn, this is like playing the friendship game in The Sims, and these guys will then start to follow me and mimic what I do. So here we're playing together, and now at this point, the guy will become my friend. I get the little friend thing. And now he'll roughly follow me around. And I can get a little pack of my little baby friends here. And we can go over here and we can kind of like annoy our neighbors, the herbivores again, tease them. <laughs> well, those guys are a lot bigger than we are, but we're pretty fast. Yeah, they're getting annoyed down there. Yeah, they'll definitely get us. But I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. Now, we actually, I'm going to skip a lot of intermediate levels of the game. Eventually, you develop intelligence, and you start controlling an entire tribe of these guys and control their technical advancements. You can get them things like fire, spears, etc. Uh, you can design things like their hut. Like in every level of the game, you're dealing with things the player is creating. And using generative techniques underlying that, that's what makes it possible for, in 20 clicks, the player to create something, is that we've made so much of it algorithmic on the computer side. So that gives the player a huge amount of creative leverage. The computer becomes a creative amplifier to the player. Uh, eventually, you start building entire cities, and you can design buildings in the cities. Uh, eventually, vehicles, as the civilizations start interacting with each other. And I'm going to skip way ahead here. This is going to be the same planet that we were on, the same creatures, but this is uh, basically at the end of the civilization phase. And so, at the end, what? The end of the civilization phase. So these creatures have, you know, advanced all the way through, you know, tribal, city, and civ, and now they're at a high level of technological advancement. Uh, you can get a sense of some of their cities. All these buildings were designed by the player in the editor. Mm -hmm. The cities that you're competing with were designed by other players in the editor and downloaded to your computer automatically to basically fill out your world, as well as the vehicles, etc. here. So here's our home city. Now at this point of the game, we can click on it and we can go to the next stage of the game, where we're actually entering the space-faring side of the game. Now the UFOs that we have here are like anything else as an editor, the player can create them. And this is our civilization that we were playing as evolution earlier, now basically entering the space age. And so we're having a little launch thing going on here. So we're having a little celebration. Now at this point in the game, I'm actually kind of controlling this UFO and flying around the planet. This is the planet that we evolved on. We've been playing the entire game on this planet up to this point. You can get a sense of some of the other styles of buildings. This is some of the other cities that I basically built during the civilization phase of the game. Now, at this point of the game, uh, one of the things I might want to start doing is going out and terraforming and colonizing other worlds. One of the things I might want to do is collect biological samples on my world. I can do this with this abduction beam that allows me to kind of go in using real scientific principles here. So, So as we suck these things up into our UFO, they go into the cargo hold, and we can use them. Uh, we actually, one thing we found that was kind of interesting is that we could use the abduction beam to throw things uh, really far. We managed to get some of these guys into orbit. But, uh, but now also for the first time, we can like pull all the way out and see the entire planet that we've been playing on. So, and these planets are generated as well. So using very simple rules, we're able to generate you know, entire planetary systems. So as we pull back here, we can see that we've had kind of a, a very slight ring around our planet. 
coming kind of here. As we keep pulling back, we go out to the uh, interstellar view, I mean the uh, interplanetary view. So here's our home solar system that we evolved in. These are other planets. Uh, this one I can tell has some type of life on it. So we're going to fly over this planet. Pull down the surface. Again, these planets are all generated algorithmically, and we're hoping to have you know, a vast variety of these planets. This one's a bit more kind of fantastic and imaginative than the first planet we started on. So we might want to take our creature when we pick up on our home planet and start uh, introducing them to this. Now, this planet already has a whole atmosphere and, in fact, somewhat of a simple ecosystem. Some of the other planets are more barren. In fact, you have to kind of bootstrap from the very early stages up to this level. So let's find a spot over here. Drop our guy down. They get a little stunned when they get dropped. Okay, so. Okay, they didn't get along with the neighbors too well. Uh, one of the things we can do is we can scan these guys with our scanning tool. And so any other creatures that we see on this planet, uh, we can scan. They're entered into a database that we call Sporpedia. And now that database we can access. <laughs> and... Sporpedia basically is a record of all the content that we've come across in the game. So in some sense, this is kind of a collection game. There's a card that's built for every piece of content. So this is our home star, mm -hmm. the planets around it. I click on that, and I get a little planet. This is our home planet. This is the planet that we're currently visiting right here. If I click on that, these are the species that uh, I've scanned on this planet. Mm -hmm. Each one has ratings, etc. And so we can use that to kind of keep track of the stuff that we've come across in the game. Is, is it... Um is progress in the game always hierarchical in the sense that you, you start at one level and you proceed up the echelons? Or could somebody, for instance, come up with a virus that actually had a planetary impact? So somebody specializes on at the lowest level and doesn't decide to evolve into a larger creature. Oh, you can stay at different levels, but the idea that we would be simulating viruses at the same time that we're simulating the entire planet is basically kind of unmanageable, you know, from a computational point of view. So at every level of the game, we're abstracting out the levels below and above, and we're actually running very low-res simulations when you're not there at different scales, but when you go back there, we have to regenerate the content. And so a lot of this is us kind of propping up the illusion of thousands and millions of things all running at the same time, but we're really doing it with abstraction and regeneration. Mm -hmm. So to give you a little bit better example of that, as we pull back from this, now at some point I can upgrade my UFO, and eventually I earn the ability to pull all the way out from our home solar system to the interstellar view. So this is a region of interstellar space around our home system with other stars. We have a lot of other things that you might see in the Hubble telescope, things like black holes, nebula, etc. We can fly to each one of these. Uh, and these are, in many cases, worlds created by the computer. In other cases, they're worlds created by other players. So if we zoom into one of these worlds here, one of these new solar systems, we now see a different set of planets here. And so this one close to the sun is a very hot, rocky planet. This one, it would be a big terraforming challenge. We can pull down, like the last planet was very imaginative. Mm -hmm. 
kind of almost Disney-like planet. This is, in fact, a much more realistic planet. This is very much like the early Earth was about 4 billion years ago. Kind of a hot volcanic world here. Pull down to the surface. We can bring up the sound a little bit. Some of these worlds, as you're exploring them, you'll come across things. And so there might be alien artifacts or things that you can kind of scan into your UFO. Uh, so there's a whole kind of aspect of exploring this vast world. And the fact that we can generate an infinity of these worlds kind of means that you never run out of things to explore. A lot of these planets are going to be entire civilizations that other players have created that are brought down to your computer's copies. And so as you play the game, it's keeping track of not just the creatures that you've designed, but in the entire planets, because you can sculpt entire planets uh, once you get to this level with the UFO. So here's another world. Let's go over. This has actually got civilization on it. And this world is orbiting this gas giant. It's actually kind of a moon around this gas giant here. And this was created by another player, but it's asynchronous. In other words, the other player is not online right now. What happened is the computers observed the way the other player played this. They might have played this as a very peaceful race or trading people or explorers. And the computer tries to stay fairly consistent with the way that player has basically programmed their behavior. So we're going to go up and meet them. Do your impacts on that planet uh, register on it permanently? I mean, will they be there for the player when that player returns to it? Well, see, one of the points of this is that we want every player to be able to be a hero in their own universe. And so I want to be able to do whatever I want to do on this planet without ruining that player's experience. Mm -hmm. So this is where it's asynchronous, and this is why I'm playing with a copy. But at the same time, the other player is going to get a report of how many people came in and trashed his world or made alliances with it or whatever. So you get reports back from what we call the metaverse, which mm -hmm. is all the parallel universes that people are playing this game yes. in. Uh, so these guys are kind of wondering why we're here. Um, you know, at this point, I might try maybe firing some fireworks. Okay, they like that. Uh, keep now, the relationships I can develop with these other races go a number of different ways. We can end up being trading partners. Uh, we can end up, you know, forming an alliance or a federation. Uh, well, in this case, they decided to worship us. So, as gods, that's hiring. Yeah. So we might pick one of them up and bring them with us. Uh, oh, okay. So they didn't like that. That's, that's how we treat. Yeah, that's, that was bad. Okay. That's how we treat. But I have weapons somewhere here. Oh, here we go. Yes. So I can shoot back at least. But I have to take out their planetary So I basically inadvertently sparked a interplanetary war here. Um, kind of a major oops. Americans are doing that all the time. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's about right. Just keep your hands to yourself. No comment there. Um, Okay, I've basically taken out their defenses, and so now I can do whatever I want with them. But uh, at this point, I should probably run. Just you know, blow them up. Yeah, it, it, it was an accident, you know. Actually, one <laughs> thing that we found is that the uh, terraforming tools... The intelligence were, was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I can erase the uh, evidence just by bringing a few comments down. Uh, this is actually terraforming tools that we use for uh, bringing oceans to a planet. And so if I drop enough comets on here, the ocean levels will start rising here, and I can eventually erase what I've done, hopefully. <laughs> so this is the uh, global warming fast-forward version. <laughs> you can pretty much recreate. So here we are. Okay, that should do it. 
All right. Now, as we pull, now we don't know if this is the, you know the homeworld of this species or just a colony. Okay, so they're upset. Say sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was all an accident. Uh, as we pull away from this, uh, we're getting another message on our comm screen. Uh, oh, okay, so we just started a war, and in fact, that was just one of their colonies. So now we have to head home to defend our homeworld. But so this region of space we're looking at here represents several thousand stars. You know, the player can explore. You know, many of which are player generated, many of which are computer generated. Uh, but even this represents just a very small fraction of the entire world the player can actually play in. We're actually dealing with several million worlds that are all unique. Uh, and the only way that can actually happen is the fact that the world is continually, this galaxy is continually being created by the collective efforts of a million players as they play. Mm-hmm. And underneath all of that is the power of these generative systems and, you know, giving the players that kind of amplification, you know, through these editors, you know, that those generative systems provide. But uh, so that's the score demo. Uh, Fantastic. Thank well, you. thanks. <laughs> well, I think so I think we're right on time for the Q and A stuff. Right. So Stuart, are you going to read the questions, or should we just? <laughs> okay. Um. Well, I've had a question, a request if you can put your screen down a bit, the people who've been wondering what your face looks like for a while can now see. Uh, Here's a question from, looks like, Bart Balaki. Where are you? Okay. Do either of you have any comments on how we should think about intellectual property and authorship in a world of generative design? That's a very interesting question, which, as you can imagine, I've thought about a fair amount. Um, I've, just, I've just released a new thing, which is called 77 Million Paintings by Brian Eno. It's a, it's a generative work. Um, <laughs> 77 million? 77 million, yeah. Oh, okay. And um, it's a piece of software. And there was a lot of discussion about how <coughs> we would protect the results of this. So I, I decided finally to put a sign on it which says uh, any of these pictures are f- available for use actually all 77 million any all 77 million and then it says and but would you please give me a credit because <laughs> 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 um, there's no there's absolutely no way of protecting them and and anyway I don't particularly I would never know if anybody used them because I'm never going to see more than 200,000 of them in my life so <laughs> That's a lot, 200,000. Yeah, well, it's probably an exaggeration. I mean, With us, we have the issue that we're building these systems that players then use to build content themselves, and infrequently other players will take that content and yeah. make something else. Yeah. You know, we had, like in the last version of The Sims, a machinima tool to where players can make movies. Frequently they would download other players' creations, their characters or houses, to make the movies. And so yeah. we have so many different layers of authorship yes. that at some point it gets just horrendously complex. Yeah, well, it's been like that in music now for 15 or 20 years, you know. I mean, of course, the, the record that I made in this city, actually, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, is a very good example of a, of a complex authorship problem. Mm. Because on, on that record, I used other recordings. It was un, unusual then to do that, but I used other recordings as my lead vocalist, preachers or 
Um, and you had to contact all those people and get permission? And well, I'd, at that time, of course, we didn't do that kind of thing because nobody <laughs> knew there was going to be any money in it. It sounded so weird at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I did apply for permission, and in fact, um, when the record was mastered and ready to go, um, one of those permissions was refused, and we had to junk all the records we've made and all the covers and put another track on in its place. We, we had to do that three times, actually. What, one interesting side effect of this whole thing that I found is that it puts us, in terms of commercial companies, producing stuff in a position where there are certain things we cannot do, but our fans can do, mm-hmm. because they're not doing it for commercial gain, and they're basically under the radar doing grassroots stuff. So they can build content and grab stuff and collect it and make these kind of remix things and then put them on their website so we could never put on our website. So in mm-hmm. some sense, it gives the fan communities a whole reason to exist because they're kind of under the radar of this legal issue. Actually, we, we just have another interesting example of this going at the moment. Um, so My Life in the Bush of Ghosts has just been re-released. And the record company, with that usual flash of brilliance that record companies show when you re-release a record, said, <laughs> let's put some remixes on it as though nobody had ever thought of that ever before. And of course, it always happens, and they want you to put sort of six horrible, dodgy remixes on your wonderful record. (laughs) So David Byrne had a much better idea. David Byrne is my collaborator on that record. Um, Which was to make a website where we would put the individual tracks of some of the records, you know, the guitar part, the bass part, this and that and so on, onto a website so that anybody could make their own remixes and then post them back on the site. Oh, yeah, what's the site? That was very cool. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, if, I've got some if you want to hear them later. They're, they're really very good, the, the remixes that people have done. They're amazing, some of them. Yeah, yeah, them up. What's the URL on oh, yeah. that, Brian? Where do people find that online? Uh, it's called bushofghosts.com, bush-of-ghosts.com. And it's, it's fascinating what people have done. And what's very interesting, of course, they all have weird names like Blastex P and right. Lobotomy. And yeah. you have no idea who anybody is. There's just this stuff flowing into the site. And, and uh, visitors to the site rate it. So there's a chart in there, uh-huh. um, you know, which th- things people like best and so on. I found that fascinating when people started using The Sims to tell stories and make movies and stuff. It was the first time that, as a creator, I thought the fans were entertaining me just as much as I was entertaining them. Yes, yes. I I wondered seriously about the idea of making a whole record like that. Not actually making the record, but just putting the parts up. Oh, that's a fascinating idea. Saying to the rest of the world, here's some interesting bits. Mm -hmm. Try sticking them together for me. Okay, here's a related question. A pair of questions, actually. The same question from two different people. Uh, Dan Ancona and uh, A. Mark Live? Love? You guys out there? Okay, the first version is there are a lot of really interesting political assumptions embedded in the simple rules that drive SimCity. Would you ever consider open sourcing a version of it so we could play with those assumptions? And then uh, the second question is, Spore makes a lot of political assumptions about the basic evolution of civilization, it seems. What do you think about a game where you can model various generative politics, maybe play with fascism or anarchism or you name it? Okay. Uh, That's a a brilliant idea, by the way, I have to say. Yeah, that's... uh, that would certainly be, let me go to the first question about SimCity, is that we have looked at giving the players more access to the rule structures underneath. In fact, we did a simulation called SimHealth, 
uh, I know it sounds terribly exciting, but it was a model of the national health care system where the players could actually get under the hood and adjust the rules and assumptions. In fact, I think, you know, when people play SimCity and they get to the point of starting to argue with the assumptions of the simulation, that means that the game has been successful because they've coalesced in their mind the model of the game and how it differs from their own viewpoint. In some sense, it helps coalesce their own internal assumptions. And when they can start arguing with it, uh, that feels to me like a really good result of the game. Now, giving people access to the underlying algorithms, again, it's not as simple as you might think in that we're dealing with these generative systems and that we spend a lot of time discovering these rules that gave us reasonable looking traffic or crime or whatever. Uh, so it would more be the process of giving them access to the very underlying generative structures and letting them discover other rules. So that's something that would be a very different thing than a game. In terms of open sourcing it, we have done that with some of our really old stuff. And we've seen interesting results, especially like in college programs, when people are reprogramming like Sims objects and things like that. So, yes, I think I'm very open to the idea. It's probably harder than it sounds for most people. Mm -hmm. In terms of Spore and the political stuff, that would be kind of a different direction. I think civilization, Sid Meier's civilization, goes into that area much more thoroughly than we can afford to in Spore because we're trying to cover so much ground. Spore's more about breadth and about player creativity than it is about, you know, delving deep into any one particular aspect of it. Well, here's a related question by Ed Bateman. Um, allowing that all creativity may be in some form derivative, Brian, as you've said, art is about art. Mm-hmm. Um, is the creativity inspired by games more akin to fan fiction? In, in, in a to, way, to what? To fan, fan fiction. Fans of uh, okay. Star Trek making their own Star Trek films, oh, right, things right. like this. Mm-hmm. Or people writing uh, uh, you know, their own versions of, of stories. Harry Potter has a whole world of other people's versions of Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Well, I think games, certain games are allowing more and more access to the underlying content where players can modify the actual objects. And in some sense, in fact, it is kind of interesting because we're starting to see games not just used as entertainment or education, but as tools of self-expression. As I said before, players are making stories and even movies with the Sims. You know, originally these were very simple little stories about superheroes, but later they got very deep, very elaborate stories, you know, about their, you know, autobiographical experiences, very heartfelt things. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to me that something that starts out as a piece of entertainment eventually becomes a tool for people, you know, and I think kind of what you're talking about on your website, you know, people are probably drawn to that because it feels like, you know, music, I mean, listen to these pieces, at some point they start playing with them, sticking them together like Legos, and then they start realizing creative aspirations. Well, there's a couple of questions here, Will, and are you aware of uh, sort of SimCity being used by real urban planners? Are you aware of things that, that (laughs) behaviors that people have developed in Sims that they then go out and uh, try in real life? Oh, no, I hope not. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've discovered, and I, you know this very well, is the fact that we thought back in the 60s when computers came out that we could simulate the world if we just had enough data and we had, you know, <laughs> elaborate enough algorithms. But later we discovered this thing called chaos theory, which says that, you know, basically interesting systems are inherently unpredictable. And we have very severe limits on the predictability of things like weather and social systems and economies. And for that reason, a model like SimCity, no matter how elaborate you make it, no matter what type of supercomputer you run it on, has fairly limited predictivity value. Uh, and they're actually much better as descriptive models or educational mm-hmm. models. So 
Uh, I know a lot of planners have used SimCity to introduce other planners to GIS systems, geographic information systems. Mm -hmm. uh, just the idea of, you know, basically digital access to the content that they were normally dealing with on paper. And it also allows people to kind of get a, a, a some sense of the underlying dynamics of the city in a very simplistic caricature fashion. But uh, we've seen people go the other way, where they take aspects of their real life, their real city, uh, and then model them in things like The Sims or in SimCity. Uh, one of the things that we have a lot of girl players for The Sims. In fact, over half the players are female. And one of the things I hear so often is like 15-year-old girls, they put their sel themselves in the game and their boyfriends and simulate their interactions. And they go tell their boyfriend what happened, what their <laughs> Sim boyfriend did to them. And uh, <laughs> I think it's more to hear his reaction to the fact that he was flirting with this person over here or whatever. Uh, but in some sense, they treat it kind of almost as a voodoo doll or a spreadsheet, you know, for life. You know. Uh, but I tend to think of it more as it's a scaffolding for their imagination. These are things they might imagine anyway, but the game just becomes a scaffolding for it. Uh, here's a question from Ken Pontek. Where are you? Up there somewhere. How come I never have enough time? What? How come I never have enough time, Brian? I, th I thought that was you talking. Well, me too. <laughs> probably everybody here. And, and the, one of the issues is, is, is playing with time. You're doing it with music and mm -hmm. in some ways taking people into a timeless place with at least the ambient music, a non-narrative, mm -hmm. non-beginning, middle-end, uh, non-time event. But these games, Will, that you're designing and others are designing uh, seem to compress time. And a whole lot happens yeah. Not necessarily in a, in a narrative sense, but a whole lot happens in a relatively short time. You're taking these creatures from spores to space in a matter of, I don't know, days. Uh, that doesn't usually happen in the real world, as far as we know. Well, I, I think um, the experience of time is very, very elastic indeed. If, if any of you have ever been involved in a serious accident and had that experience of your life rushing before you... Um, and, you know, a one second or a half second actually occupies an enormous amount of time. You can see every detail unfolding in that half second. When I got this cut on my head that, that was getting hit by a London taxi, they're very heavy, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> I got knocked over by one. Um, but uh, I was so fascinated by the fact that so much had happened in my mind that in the hospital bed I managed to write a ten-page piece about everything that had happened in that half second. Really? Yes, it was a bit like those physicists who deal with the first three nanoseconds of the oh, universe. Oh, right. Stu Hawking stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, do you think but, when you do your music, do you imagine the perception that you're going to give the listener of time? Like, does the ambient stuff stretch time for people? I think so, it? yes. Yes, I, well, that's, that's what it does for me, and I hope it does it for other people. It, kind of smooths time actually it stops it being jerky and uh, uh. urgent and discontinuous it, it was for, like a regulator. for a while it, it smooths it hmm. um, and makes it into a continuous thing just for a bit I tend to think of you know, games and even storytelling as almost technologies for us dealing with time mm -hmm. because we're basically our perceptions are embedded in the time stream uh, we never have the opportunity to go back in the past but through things like storytelling, you know, if I come out of the cave and a tiger almost eats me, I can go back and tell you. And you never experienced that. But the next mm -hmm. time you leave the cave, you're going to look out for that tiger. Mm -hmm. You know, basically, yeah. I have taken this experience out of time, displaced it into you, yes. as though you had that experience. Yes. And in games, you know, players can restart a level, try new options, explore that possibility space. 
And so these are, you know, tools that we also use our imagination for all the time as we're building models and, you know, kind of running scenarios in our head of us dealing with the fact, the simple fact that we are embedded in the time stream and we do not have mobility through it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the type of stuff you do, I think you do have almost a throttle in some sense. You know, I think you're kind of throttling the flow of time for the listener. Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course, if you... You do that with rhythm, no end. You know, you, you do it by subdividing rhythm and by missing out beats where they ought to be. That, that really increases the experience of time, I think. Where so it's like you're punctuating time. Yes, you create a grid and then you, you don't observe it. Mm. You miss certain parts out of the grid. And that gives a very funny feeling of a huge hole. It feels, it's like that feeling when one of your teeth breaks. Uh-huh. You feel this enormous hole in your mouth just because you're so familiar with what should be there. Uh-huh. You can do that with um, rhythm, I think, as well. And so it's the blank space that really defines it. Yeah, there. that's what reggae is all about, actually. Uh-huh. Reggae is about creating great big holes where you expect there to be beats. Oh, really? Uh, Brian, why don't you queue up one of those uh, pieces that have come on, on your uh, website while I ask another yes, question, because sure. I know you can all do these things at once, from Kevin Kelly. Uh, how have these generative systems changed your sense of long-term thinking? That's a question for both of you. Oh, sorry, was that a question? How have these generative systems changed your sense of long-term thinking? That's, that's Males aren't very good at multitasking, you know. Putting a CD on completely occupies all of my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, of course, a lot of the pieces I've done have been um, effectively infinite, which which is very interesting to make pieces of music that nobody will ever hear the whole of. So I sort of like that idea. I used to when I used to do. At one period of doing installations, I would, you know the way in art galleries they always say dimensions of everything, and they say sort of this piece 19 feet 6 inches by 11 foot 9, and then I would say music estimated length 6,410 years. (laughs) (laughs) So does that give you a better perspective on the... Basically, the ratio. We talked earlier about the compression ratio between the simplest, you know, set of rules generating these huge amounts. In some sense, it seems like that's kind of what you're alluding to there, is the fact that these simple little loops, you know, out of phase, in fact, will not repeat for 67,000 years or whatever it is. Yeah, it's so, it's so elegant, I think. It's, mm-hmm. so, it's so economical. I mean, especially with the shows I do in galleries, I nearly always show people exactly how the trick is done. There's normally six or ten CD players, each one playing its own CD, and the CDs aren't synchronized. So this is one of the Bush of Ghosts remixes, by the way. Very so, nice piece. So one of the fans made this? Thing? Yeah. I, I think for me, the uh, as I've played with these generative systems and tried to simulate more and more aspects of the world, I see the kind of the world around me now as both simpler and more complex than I originally thought. You know, I originally thought of it as being underlined by these fairly complex rules, you know, that had some kind of finite space to them. Now I actually see the world as being built out of these incredibly simple little things interacting that are actually driving much higher level of complexity than I really thought yes, in the light exactly. of so the, so the rules are simpler, but the outcomes are much, much more right. florid than one had ever imagined. Right, and it's not a straightforward transposition from these simple rules to that outcome. In yeah. fact, it's a very magical, very counterintuitive thing. That's, that was the thing that most attracted me about life, that 
one of those cellular automata. I remember when I lived in San Francisco in 1980, they had a very primitive version of life on a computer at the Exploratorium. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Oh, I used to go there every day. I, I, I used to fight people off it. All these annoying, annoying children would come and watch yeah. it. <laughs> they had it running in hardware. They'd actually built a hardware machine. So it wasn't even being run software. So yeah. It was like extremely fast for life at the time. It was fantastic. And I, I got to know this thing so well that I eventually was appointed as an explainer. No. <laughs> a kind of honorary You must explainer. work there if you know so much about Just it. so I... Because I didn't want to get, get, get off it. But what fascinated me was the counterintuitive nature of it. Because I... You know, if you're an artist, you sort of flatter yourself with this idea that you know your intuition, you work with your intuition. And here was a situation where your intuition was absolutely useless at making predictions. Yeah, and there was that disconnect between these simple things to, oh my this God, very simple made. situation. You would think with something as simple as that, surely predictions would be very easy. Yeah, did, did that actually spark your interest in generative music? Yeah, that was part of it, yes. So that, that tied in with the Steve Reich experience and um, some of the things Terry Riley had done. There, there, was, there were various things going on in music that they hadn't really consolidated into an idea. But I think life was what really sort of clicked it for me. And do you feel like the, the visual example of life as having these simple rules and leading to these elaborate things, do you think that's the same rough kind of thing that you see when you're dealing with generative music? I mean, that kind of unpredictability that you see yeah. Yes, I mean, the, the, the great thrill is to, to put together something that is much more beautiful than you could have imagined. Mm -hmm. You know, you start out another working day, sit there, have a cup of tea, stick a few things together, try some rules, and suddenly something beautiful comes out. Just like a discovery. Yeah, now, that's how it feels like fantastic. to me. It feels more like discovery than it feels like uh, creation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's well, how right. about destruction? I got a question here uh, for you, cellular automatons. It's interesting that both of you have locked so totally into that because it is such the sort of founding of generative thinking for a lot of people. Uh, this question is from Bob Kopak. Uh, do you think Katrina or the uh, tsunami in uh, Sumatra were caused by one pixel mistakes? By, by which mistakes? One pixel, one pixel mistakes. mistakes. <laughs> well, this the cellular automata of life. Yeah. This, this was the sort of butterfly effect theory, wasn't it? You know, this, this was the idea of chaos theory, that you know, a tiny, tiny piece of behavior in some part of the universe would eventually compound into something huge in another part. But, um, That's what restart is for, is when that happens. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I think that actually brings up an interesting point, because there is a big difference between weather and climate. Mm -hmm. You know, so chaos theory does operate at the level of weather, where small perturbations in the atmosphere could possibly create a storm system. But uh, in terms of climatic changes, uh, which you know, as the oceans get warmer or sea levels rise, those over statistical periods of time are probably much more stable and much less random than we might think. So the you know probability of bad hurricanes occurring is most certainly going to go up over time if the oceans warm. That's mm -hmm. a certainty, really. Mm -hmm. But the fundamentalist chaos theoreticians would say, yeah, but climate only got that way because some butterfly many, many, many millions of years ago flapped its wings. I don't... Yeah, I mean... I, I don't personally believe this or... Yeah, I think climate is a much a more predictable thought, thing, you know, and it's underlaid by very uh, elaborate but yet uh, 
almost glacial processes, you know, mm-hmm. very, with a lot of inertia to them, mm-hmm. that I think that a hurricane could possibly be created by some small local perturbation. But in terms of climate, in terms of the frequency of really bad hurricanes occurring over the next 10 years, that is most certainly a probably a long-term trend, mm-hmm. you know, based upon very deep cycles of the carbon cycle and things of that nature. I, I did a game a while back, Sim Earth, which is actually simulating a lot of these cycles. And it was actually interesting how many of them were related across disciplines. So you had certain people over here studying the weather, other people studying geology, uh, other people studying the ocean. But all these things are tightly interconnected. And mm-hmm. we're just now starting to realize how interconnected they, they are. Yeah. A couple of specific questions for each of you. One from Brian Good for um, Brian Eno. Did you utilize generative systems when producing U2 albums? Um, in, in some ways, I do use generative systems in that I sometimes come up with sets of rules for people. So um, if there's a sort of creative impasse, of course, if things are going fine, you don't need rules. <laughs> things are going fine. But very often, you know, things hit a wall and nobody quite knows what to do. And when you don't quite know what to do, what you normally do is fall back on your habits. So... I often think of ways of breaking habits, like um, getting people to switch instruments, for instance, or getting people only to use a small part of the range of their instrument, you know, play the guitar only on those top frets, or or getting into role-playing. For example, um, when I was working with um, Bowie on one record we did, I wrote some sort of scenarios for clubs of the future, the year 2015. So I, I invented this club on the outskirts of Tripoli um, and invented a kind of music that they played. I described the kind of music that was played there. It was sort of, uh, a sort of post-techno African rye or something like that. Um, and then invented the kinds of instruments that they would have and what sort of personalities the players had. Um, so it was like a role-playing game, actually, but the, the result of it was music. So, so we tried to occupy those roles and you imagine that, that our instruments were those instruments and try to get them to make the kind of sounds those instruments would make. So those kinds of things are, I think, very, very useful, even if they don't specifically produce pieces of music that you use, though they sometimes do. What they really do is break habits and sort of open you up to new ways of listening and doing things. Um, I, I work more and more that way with musicians these days, try to just think of new ways of starting to think about making music. So it's kind of like you're stuck on a creative local maxima and you want to knock yourself off that maxima through some strange process. To yes, and try to maxima. find another one, exactly, yeah. yes. It's, it works especially well with people who've, who have, who've worked together for a very long time and if people have worked together for a very long time, they have one great strength, which is that they're quite telepathic. But they have one great weakness, too, which is that they're very often over-diplomatic. In that, you know, because in order to keep the group solid and happy, nobody really wants to say to the guitar player who's just spent four days on one part, it's not very good. <laughs> but um, in a role-playing situation, you can actually, mm-hmm. because you're not, you're not that person any longer. You're, you're, now, now, you're now this new character who always says things like that. Yeah. You see what I mean? <laughs> Will, a couple of questions for you. Does spore have ever. parasites? Uh, every complex ecology is mostly parasites. How about spore? 
I'm sorry. Does spore have parasites? Uh, not overtly. You know, again, that's an avenue we could have gone down that would have involved uh, a great deal of confusion on the player's part. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to keep things, you know, very uh, high correspondence between what they create in the editors mm-hmm. and the results they get in the game. As you get into things like parasites, if I design this great creature and I painted it all up and all of a sudden he dies of a cold, you know, it, it works for War of the Worlds is, is the punchline. But uh, there are a lot of things that when we do game design, we either break reality or conveniently ignore aspects of it because we're trying to engineer a certain experience on the part of the player. Right. So games are not about, you know, put everything into them that you possibly can. In fact, really the hard part as a designer of games is deciding how much stuff can we possibly remove and still mm-hmm. maintain that core experience. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes is about Japanese gardening, and it's that uh, your garden is not complete until there's nothing else which you can remove. And I think, uh, you know, for me, that's very much design. You know, what is the simplest, smallest thing that you can put together that achieves the design goal? Yeah, I think about music very often the same way. Um, I start off painting, so putting everything on, and then I end up sculpting, cutting, cutting stuff out. That you did that with that uh, Laurie Anderson's album, The Big Way. You took all the music off it. Oh, uh, that's right, yes. So, yes, when I was working on that album, when we came to mixing, I, I, got, I worked out a procedure for mixing, because I, I love her voice so much. I thought, I'm going to start every mix just with her voice, and I'm going to see how long I can listen just to her voice before I want anything else to happen. Now, I have a very high tolerance for her voice, so I probably would have never put another instrument on if, if it had only been down to me. But with advice, I would gradually bring other instruments in. Okay, another question. Uh, here we come back to reality from Jesse Cowan Sharp. Do you, this is for Will, do you see physical reality, virtual reality, and gaming merging in the future. So how? While you're pondering your answer to that, uh, Werner Binga has his answer out in a brand new science fiction book set in 2025 called Rainbow's End, which plays out this very question in uh, exquisite detail. But will you probably have another sense of how the interaction might work? Well, I think they are merged right now because I think you see things happening you know, in what I call cyberspace or you know, the over the net that very definitely impact you know, the real world. In fact, you know, our perceptions have changed as a result of these technologies. The computers turned out to be more of a communication tool than a computational tool. So uh, I think in a very real sense, they are merged. I think even in things like online games, you have real communities of people forming real relationships, you know, and a lot of them actually ending up meeting, getting married or whatever. Mm -hmm. So these are definitely areas where socialization is occurring, where communities, real communities are forming, even though they happen to be online. So... I would say this is one of the kind of most rapid transformative experiences that our culture has gone through uh, in history. You know, yeah. the fact that the Internet, you know, as Kevin Kelly pointed out, is 10 years old is astounding. You know, when you think about how it's impacted our world, you know, in 10 years that we've come to rely and so much of what we do has moved into this medium that, uh, yes, I think they are very much connected already. Well, you'll be in the thick of it. Uh, it's a good, uh, we're heading toward a big finish here. It's uh, 9 o'clock. Roger Lynn asks um, both of you, what did you really want to talk about? But nobody asked. <laughs> or another version of that is, what did you really want to ask uh, the other person on the stage? But uh, this is we, the last we did have a, We did have an idea, actually, that 
that we might um, talk about what happens to people when they play games. He was going to talk about that, and I was going to talk about what happens to people when they engage in culture, generally. But that's a long story. I mean... <laughs> so that's two long stories you've got. <laughs> two long stories, yes. So Start I think with the culture sort of... and work back to the game. I'll bet you can do a short version. Yeah, start with culture, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the short version. Um, <laughs> my, my definition of culture, which I've used for quite a few years now, is um, culture is everything you don't have to do. So you have to wear clothes, at least in this climate you do, but you don't have to wear these particular clothes. We could all just wear sacks, actually, couldn't we? Um, you have to eat, but you don't have to develop complex and beautiful cuisines. So, so there's a layer of things we have to do, um, otherwise we wouldn't survive. And then there's a huge layer on top of that, which is stylistic, essentially. And we spend a lot of our time thinking about that stylistic layer. So I started asking myself, since that's the layer that I make my living in, a long time ago, why are we so interested in that? What are we doing when we engage in stylistic um, play like that and I think it's a to, to cut very quickly to the end of this one hour <laughs> explanation I think what's really going on is that we are engaging in some kind of simulation activity so when we look at stylistic things we're very sensitive to what's different uh, in one hairstyle for example than another and we're very sensitive to what those differences imply to us you know he's got a rather feminine hairstyle he looks really gay he looks very masculine he looks this she looks that and we we read these cues from hairstyles um, quite without thinking about it and we make choices about our own well I don't very much but um, um, and so what we're doing always I think is when we see any stylistic object we're we're seeing in that a little tiny microcosm of some kind, a little set of implications about a world picture. And that, you know, you can see how that's clearly the case in a novel, but I think it's also the case in an earring or in a cupcake, a decorated cake, you know. Um, So I think what we're doing then is we're constantly looking at these things to imagine what would that kind of world be like? What would it be like to be that kind of person who wears that kind of hair? What would it be like to like that kind of picture? And I think we, we do this at sort of some levels of remove. We watch ourselves doing it. We watch ourselves surrendering to objects of culture because we can surrender to them because they don't hurt us, essentially. That's the, the best thing about art is that it isn't life you can switch it off or walk out, walk away from it. So therefore, you can surrender to it as well. And the the act of surrendering to something is really the act of, for a little while, agreeing to live in that particular world with its particular values and seeing what it's like. And I think this is because the strongest difference between humans and other creatures is that we're capable of imagining and that's exactly what imagining is. Imagining is the process of, imagining, of thinking what else it could be like, how else things could be. And we practice that all the time, I think, with, with objects of culture. So that's a very poor explanation, really, but 
I, I can make it much better if I had longer. <laughs> oh, that was excellent. And what was the other question? This, this is dueling intellectual. Where does that uh, connect with games, both of you? Well, actually, I think I think of games and play in actually a, quite a bit of overlap with your answer mm-hmm. in that I see these as tools that we use for, first of all, perceiving the world and building models in our head. You know, in fact, when we do these computer models, those aren't the real models we're building. The real models we're building are in the player's head. The computer game is just a compiler for that mental model in the player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have this ability as humans to build these fairly elaborate models in our imagination. And, you know, the process of play is the process of pushing against reality constructing a model, mm-hmm. refining the model by looking at the results of us pushing and interacting with things. You know, one of the probably chief aspects of our survival as we became a social species was not just modeling the world around us, nature, but modeling other humans, you know, which in fact were probably the most complex things that we were interacting with. Mm-hmm. You know, we could probably learn things about the seasons and about the predators at a much simpler level than the complexity of other humans. And so that's where we started, I think, developing this the deep ability of empathy mm, to yeah. look at another person and get a sense of their motivations, their feelings, what they're likely to do next. Mm-hmm. And I think that became the basis of what we call storytelling. So as I'm watching a movie or reading a book, I can imagine myself as that actor on screen. In fact, that actor is really just an elaborate simulation of a real person mm. experiencing those emotions, having those motivations that we can just place ourselves into temporarily and understand what yeah. it would feel like. You know, just like you were saying, when we look at other people, what would it be like to be that person? Yeah. That's an amazing human ability, almost like uh, psychic in its level yeah. of you know, detail. You know, I can look at another person just with a glance and get a sense of kind of what they're thinking, mm-hmm. what they're about to do. So I think storytelling basically was built upon that empathic circuit. And I think play, which is probably the other major educational technology that uh, evolution developed, was based upon the idea of agency. That in fact, I can touch the world, interact and observe the results and start building models of that world. So I think a lot of our understanding of the world and the way we perceive it is through those two avenues. Mm-hmm. You know, and one is pretty much the domain of play and interaction. And the other one is more the domain of linear storytelling mm-hmm. and transferring experience across time. Why is play the common verb here? Playing music, playing games? Why, That's a good question. Why is play the common verb? You play music, you play games. Yes, yes. Um, and it is in most languages as well, actually. Really? It's not really? just in English. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I don't know. It's, um, it makes perfect sense in a way that it should be, you know, that one is... One is exploring a, exploring a territory called music, just as one explores a, a game. It's almost like play is a word that was designed not to be precise, mm-hmm. you know, because we yeah. apply it to so many different things. Yeah. And it's almost the whole purpose of that word is to cast an umbrella over activities that we do not want to be overly specific about yeah. and leave a certain yeah. amount of creative latitude to its mm-hmm. interpretation. Yeah. You guys know the book uh, uh, Homo, Ludens, uh, Homo Ludens by oh, Hoisinger? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You live it. Keep living it. You guys are uh, phenomenally generative. This has been a, I suspect, generative evening. Are there any uh, final uh, admonishments or statements you'd like to send us out with? Well, I must say I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you for very interesting questions from the audience. 
really, all good questions, weren't they? Yeah, they were hard. <laughs> they were. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much. And thank you as well. I... Yeah, well, thank Brian, too. For, uh... <laughs> Give us some music and we'll uh, process out of here. Thank you. Okay. Check on all of our equipment. <laughs> okay. I I haven't had music for the last uh, half an Stuart. hour.